Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would prepare our hearts to come to your word and to hear from you, Lord. I pray that uh, you would give us soft hearts, Father, that if our hearts have grown hard over this past week, we pray that by your spirit you would break up the fallow ground of our hearts, that you'd give us soft hearts, Lord, hearts of good soil that are ready and eager to receive your word, Lord, and to, to hold it fast and to bear fruit from it with perseverance. Lord, give us that good and honest heart that acknowledges your word as true, that it is willing to confess our sin to you, and that recognizes who you are as the only one who has saved us, the only one who deserves glory in our lives, the only one who is worthy for us to serve. Lord, may you sanctify us by your Holy Spirit through your word this morning, we pray. I pray that you'd help me in explaining your word, Lord. I pray you'd grant your people discernment. Lord, help them, as we read in John 10, to to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. And if they hear any other voice other than that coming through what I say, help them to ignore it, to reject it, to discount it. Lord, help them to know what is faithful to your word and what is not. Give them ears to hear the Savior, um, as I pray you'd help me to proclaim him today. In Jesus' name, amen. If you could turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're looking at verses 12 to 13. I think I wrote, oh no, I did get it right up there, 12 to 13. 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13. I'll read that for us as you're turning there. Paul says, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, And all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. I don't have a fancy introduction with which to grab a hold of your attention this morning. I'll have to trust that the Word of God is compelling enough and that I won't obscure it too much so that... Your interest is grabbed by the Word of God, um, and that you'll stay with me this morning as we look at these two verses. There's a lot to say because there's a lot of confusion that surrounds what I read in these these two verses here that needs to be cleared up. So we'll be looking at a lot of cross-references today, so I want you to limber up your fingers because you're going to do a lot of flipping through your Bibles. But before we get to these two verses, just to recap what we have seen so far in this chapter. In the first three verses of chapter 12, we saw that all who confess that Jesus is Lord are equally spiritual. That is, they're equally indwelt by the Spirit of God. They're not all equally mature, but they all are equally spiritual. We saw in verses 4 through 11 that the same Holy Spirit who has enabled all believers to make that confession that Jesus is Lord, is the same one who has variously gifted all believers. That's what we've seen so far in this chapter. And these first 11 verses have impressed upon us that no one has any grounds for viewing himself as being spiritually superior to anyone else. All that we have is by the grace of God. 
All that we have has been received, not earned. That's what we've seen. And in the two verses we're looking at this morning, Paul continues to remove our ignorance about spiritual things. In these two verses that Paul is going to teach us, he'll teach us two things. First, in verse 12, we will learn that Christ is one body with many members. And second, in verse 13, we will learn that Christ's members are all baptized with one spirit, all of them. This passage this morning will serve to continue to remove our spiritual ignorance regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Church of Christ. So that's where we're going today. So let's first look at verse 12. Let's see what it says again. Paul writes, For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Paul begins that verse with the word for. He's explaining what he has just finished saying in verses 4 through 11. We can ask, after having gone through those first 11 verses, why is it that the Holy Spirit gives different gifts to, to different people? Why not just give the same gift to everyone? Why not give the same ministry to everyone? Why not give the same level of effectiveness to everyone? Well, in verse 12... Paul explains that the reason why the Holy Spirit brings about such variety, such diversity within the church regarding our giftedness is because Christ's church is designed by God to function in much the same way as our physical bodies are designed to function. That's why. In verse 12, Paul says that your physical body is one body, and yet it has many members. The word member just means body part. Your one body has many body parts. And Paul also says in verse 12 that all of your body parts, though there are many of them, are one body. You don't have several bodies, you have one body. And the fact that you have one body doesn't mean you only have one body part. You have many body parts, making up your one body. And each one of your body parts functions in a special way. And they function in harmony with one another to accomplish what your body as a whole has been designed by God to accomplish. And Paul tells us here in verse 12 that that is how it is with Christ. That is Christ's church. Christ's church is much like a body. Paul so often calls the church the body of Christ because of how its design is so similar to our physical bodies. There's one church and yet, many members make up that one church. Each member or body part of the church has a special gifting, a special role, a special function within the church body. And the church body as a whole will not function properly without each member, each body part, doing what God intends for it to do. The reason that Jesus has left us on earth and did not transport us to heaven the moment we got saved is because he still has work that he wants done on this earth. Turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. That's the Great Commission. We see what it is Jesus intends to still have accomplished on this earth as we wait for his return. Matthew, chapter 28. 
Starting in verse 18, this is before the Lord ascended into heaven. Explaining why he's leaving us here and not taking us with him at that time. Verse 18, Jesus came up and spoke to the disciples saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That is the work that Jesus intends to accomplish through his church, his body. As the eyes and the ears and the hands and the feet of Christ, each one of us brings a unique and valuable benefit or function to the table that is needed in order for the church body as a whole to accomplish what Christ intends to accomplish. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. I want us to just see a couple more passages where Paul elaborates on this concept of the church being the body of Christ and how every member has its own function. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 4. There Paul says, For just as we, speaking of our physical bodies, just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly, if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. God has given a special function to every single believer within the church. And Paul is saying, whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has uniquely gifted you to do, make sure you're doing that. Next, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. Starting in verse 11. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. Paul there says, And he, Jesus, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Notice there in verse 16 that there are joints in the body. 
That's us as believers. We are each a joint in the body of Christ. And God intends for each joint to supply something to the whole body in order that as each joint properly works, the result is that the whole body grows up and becomes more mature, more like its head, the Lord Jesus Christ. So every body part in the church, every member, every believer has a function to play, a role to play. Each one of us knows how hard it is to perform basic tasks if we've thrown our back out or we've wrecked our knee or hurt our shoulder or broken a finger. When just one part of your body is out of commission, your whole body struggles to do what it used to be able to do before everything was working perfectly. And it's the same way in the church. If just one of us is not being faithful to serve the Lord where he has placed us in the body of Christ, the whole church body will suffer because of it. We will not be able to function as we're supposed to function. Each member, each body part, each believer in the body is critical for the execution of the Great Commission. Every member matters significantly. The Holy Spirit has given us different gifts, different areas of ministry, differing levels of effectiveness, because that is precisely what is needed in order for the body of Christ as a whole to do what Christ, the head, intends for his body to do. So the question for us is, are we obeying our head? Are we obeying Christ? Are we doing what he wants us to be doing? Are we meaningfully committed and connected to a local church where we can benefit others with the gift that the Lord has given us? If my left hand, for example, decides to detach itself from my body every now and then, That's not going to do my whole body a a whole lot of good, is it? I'm going to be repeatedly injured and hampered and prevented from doing what my whole body is intended to do if my hand just decides, well, I'm going to go away for a little while. That's not how a body functions. Each one of us, as a believer, is designed to take our place within the body of Christ, to be a reliable body part, someone who can be counted on to serve the whole body. Each one of us needs to find a local church, a Bible-believing, gospel-proclaiming church, and we need to commit to it. We need to let the leadership and the congregation there know who, who you are. You need to let them know that you want them to shepherd you, that you're willing to be held accountable and you're willing to hold them accountable. You need to let them know that you want to be a body part that the whole church can rely on to help them in fulfilling the Great Commission. And having committed yourself to serve Christ and that local expression of the body of Christ, you need to get busy serving. And if God does happen to eventually call you to another church, don't just get out of Dodge without telling anybody. Instead, let your local church know so that they can pray for you They can send you on your way. They can call that church you're headed to and say, hey, so-and-so is coming. Please welcome them. That's what we see in the New Testament. They would send letters with someone who would go to another church so they know who this person is. That's how a body 
and the body of Christ functions. So that's the first point. Christ is one body and yet many members. When we come to verse 13, we find another lesson here from Paul. And it's this. Christ's members, Christ's body parts, are all baptized by one spirit. How is it that we have come to find ourselves as members or body parts of the body of Christ? If you think about it, that should not be possible considering our various backgrounds. Look back, if you will, at the beginning of chapter 12 here, verses 1 through 3. If you'll recall, verse 2, Paul was having the Corinthians think back to their experience as unbelievers. What was their experience? They were led astray to the worship of mute idols, to blocks of wood and metal and stone. They were blinded to the one true and living God. And then when we got to the first half of verse 3, I made the case that in that part of that verse, Paul was also calling them to consider another unbeliever's experience, that of the Jew, someone who cursed Christ. They didn't just not know about Christ and, and worshiped idols. Instead, they rejected Christ, blasphemed Christ. That might have been Paul's own testimony before he became a believer. Jesus is cursed, he might have said. That was the experience of unbelieving Jews. Now, given those experiences, experiences that each one of us can identify with if we look back to what we were as unbelievers, how is it that those who once worshipped idols and those who once blasphemed the name of Christ, how is it that they now have been made a part of the body of Christ? Not only that, but the Gentile who worshipped idols and the Jew who rejected Jesus at that day and age were not exactly bosom buddies. There was a wall erected between them. Jews couldn't fellowship with Gentiles, couldn't go to their home and eat with them. How do they now stand side by side, breaking bread together and worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ together? That shouldn't work. The body of Christ seems like it should be more of a Frankenstein monster ready to just blow apart at the stitched seams. It doesn't seem like it should be a harmonious body with every member seamlessly and organically, spiritually connected and harmoniously working for the good of Christ and the good of one another. How does that work? Well, verse 13 tells us how that works, how this has come to be. What does he say in verse 13? He says, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That's the answer. We can function as a body because God the Holy Spirit has baptized each one of us into that body. We have been immersed in the Holy Spirit, which has resulted in us being connected with the body of Christ. This was something that was foretold by John the Baptist in each of the four Gospels, but I'll have us look at a couple of them. Let's go to Mark chapter 1, starting in verse 7. We're seeing how John the Baptist foretold the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 1. 
verses 7 and 8. And he, John the Baptist, was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Next, let's turn to John's Gospel, chapter 1. Verse 32. John, chapter 1, verse 32. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, that is, upon Jesus. I did not recognize him, that is, did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah that John was foretelling, but he, God, who sent me to baptize in water, said to me, he, or the one upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. So John the Baptist foretold that the baptism of the Holy Spirit would come and that Jesus would be the one baptizing people in the Holy Spirit. Next, let's turn to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. There we'll see that Jesus himself told his disciples to expect that this would happen. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 4. This is Jesus right before he's going to ascend into heaven. He's giving some last-minute instructions to them. Verse 4, Gathering them together, he commanded them, that is the disciples, not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which, he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When we come to Acts chapter 2, we see... This prophecy, the prophecies of John the Baptist, fulfilled. We come to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. That's the Holy Spirit baptizing those disciples. It caused quite a stir. There's a bunch of people in Jerusalem for the feast. They wonder what's going on. And Peter explains, and he explains by referring to the prophet Joel. Verse 17 of chapter 2, quoting Joel Peter says, And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind. So this is something that the Old Testament predicted as well, that God would pour forth of his Spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. This pouring forth of the Holy Spirit, it would be um, not respective of gender or age, as seen here in this 
description from Joel. But this is what happened. That prophecy from John the Baptist and from the Lord Jesus was fulfilled. This was a pivotal moment in redemptive history. The transition from the old covenant under the Mosaic law to the new covenant had happened. That transition had been made. The new covenant promise of the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon those disciples. Now those disciples at that time, they were all Jews. They were Jewish believers. They, they had been redeemed. Christ had gone to the cross. He'd paid for their sins. But there was a period of 50 days where they were kind of in that middle between the old covenant and the new. They had not yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they were saved individuals. That transition was completed when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. Something similar happens in Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter preaches the gospel to a Gentile, Cornelius, along with his family. And starting in verse 44, we're told what happens when Peter preaches the gospel to these non-Jews. Verse 44, what happens? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers, that's the Jewish disciples, who came with Peter were amazed. Why? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. How did they know that? Verse 46, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter said, or answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? He's saying, look, just as we were baptized with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, these Gentiles have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we ought to baptize them with water, as Jesus taught us to do for his disciples. Verse 48, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days. Now, the idea of Gentiles being added to the church, that was not something that the Jewish disciples were expecting. So when Peter gets back and those who were not there inquire as to what happened, it's indicated to us that they were a little upset that Peter had gone into the house of a Gentile and he had eaten with them, something they were not supposed to do, according to what they had known previously. Listen to, to Peter's explanation, his defense of what has occurred in Acts chapter 11, starting in verse 15. This is Peter explaining. He says, And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift as he gave to us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Now look at how these inquiring Jewish disciples respond. Verse 18, when they heard this, they quieted down. They were agitated about this. But when Peter explains what has happened, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You see, at that time, it was important that those Gentiles spoke in tongues. 
just as the Jewish disciples had in chapter 2, because that was the sign to the Jewish believers that God had baptized them as well with the Spirit, that God was saving Gentiles as well. Without seeing that outward sign, those Jewish believers would have been quite reluctant to welcome the Gentiles into the church. That was important at that time. Turn with me to the book of Acts, or excuse me, the book of Acts chapter 8. Go back a couple pages to Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Because here we have the gospel coming to another people group, the Samaritans. Samaritans come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 14. So this is after Philip the evangelist has come. He's preached the gospel. They've believed. They've gotten saved. But they haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit yet. Verse 14. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized into the, in, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. So we see that scene playing out yet again. Simon, a magician in that area, he saw what was happening. He saw the apostles lay their hands on these disciples. And we're not told that they spoke in tongues as a result but Simon saw something. It could have been them speaking in tongues. There was some kind of outward sign that the Holy Spirit had baptized these believers. Because it says in verse 18, now when Simon saw, he saw something. When he saw that the Holy Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. He wanted to buy this authority, which earned him a strong rebuke from Peter. Now, we're going to get into it a little bit later here, but there are some who point to this incident. They point to the Samaritans coming to believe in Christ, getting saved, and then there's a little bit of an interlude between that time and when they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they point to this and they say, see, baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs normally after one is saved. You might go, you might go on for years before you receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But those who teach that fail to observe something. When those Samaritans received the gospel, who was not there at the time? The apostles were not there. It was important that the apostles were the ones through whom the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurred. Because if you remember in Ephesians chapter 2, who is the foundation of the church? The apostles and prophets with the cornerstone being Jesus Christ. And according to Matthew 16, who did Jesus give the keys of the kingdom to? The apostles. They were responsible for verifying and affirming and declaring who it is who would be a part of the church of Christ. They were the instruments in the hands of Christ pointing to who would be a part of his church. So it was necessary for an apostle to be present at the baptism of the spirit of the Gentiles and it was important for an apostle to be present at the same experience of the Samaritans. Let's go to one more 
uh, reiteration of, of this kind of experience. Let's go to Acts chapter 19, where we find yet another people group. Acts chapter 19, and I'm not going to read it, I'm just going to talk through it, but verses 1 through 7. In Acts 19, 1 through 7, Paul, the apostle, he encounters disciples of John the Baptist, old covenant believers who have not yet been informed about Jesus. And Paul informs them, John preached Jesus, you need to believe in Jesus. And they believe and Paul lays his hands on them and they, what? They receive the Holy Spirit. So you see this happening with these various people groups. In each of these cases, it was a new people group being reached. And in each of these cases, an apostle was present. And the individuals received the Holy Spirit in a visibly recognizable way, which let the Jews know that these other people groups had become partakers of salvation as well and were to be welcomed into the church. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit opened the doors into the church for these other ethnicities, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, and this other kind of social group of these disciples of John. You see here how spirit baptism brought about their inclusion in the church. And is that not what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13? How have we become a part of this body? It's by the Holy Spirit baptizing us and us being included in that body. When Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit at your conversion, he places you into his body, the church. He makes you a part of his special people. Jews and Greeks and Samaritans, rich and poor, men and women, adults and children, they are all, upon their salvation, immersed in the Spirit of God and they are placed into the body of Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 again, Paul says, For also by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. I don't have time to go here, but if you want to write them down, Paul speaks of this result of the unifying power of the Holy Spirit elsewhere. He speaks of it in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 29. He speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22 where there he describes the Gentiles as formerly being alienated from the people of God, strangers to the covenant of promise. But because of Christ, through the Spirit, Jews and Gentiles, two different people, have become one in the church. And then one more reference, Colossians 3, 9 through 11. It speaks of how these various groups come together in the church and become equal inheritors of the Holy Spirit, and of the salvation that has come through Jesus Christ. So all believers, regardless of your background, regardless of who you are, have equal standing before God when it comes to your salvation, when it comes to your partaking of the Spirit, when it comes to your inclusion in the body of Christ. That is what the baptism of the Holy Spirit accomplishes for us. When we baptize people in the baptismal up here, Everyone that goes in there gets equally wet, don't they? We dunk them all the way under. Each one gets equally wet. 
Well, it's similar with our baptism in the Holy Spirit. We all receive the Holy Spirit in his fullness. There are no second-class citizens. Now, there are some who teach that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a separate event from your conversion. In their view, some believers don't receive the Holy Spirit until years after their salvation. Other believers might not receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit at all. They see the baptism of the Holy Spirit as a special empowerment for ministry, and they teach that it is often accompanied by speaking in tongues. And we know where they get this teaching. They base it on what they observe in the book of Acts. Now, I want to work through this a little bit because there are a number of fatal problems for this position, a number of reasons why we should not accept that interpretation. First, this interpretation overlooks the fact that the book of Acts is describing the history of the church, describing the transition from the old covenant to the new covenant, describing the initial spread of the gospel. And as such, it is not giving us a prescription for how precisely the church is to function and what the church should expect to experience in every age. Pentecost is a one-time event. It's a once-for-all event, an unrepeatable event. There's only one time in redemptive history when the church, the new covenant people of God, were birthed into existence. Second, if those who hold this view were consistent, they would not only teach that the baptism of the Spirit occurs as a separate event sometime after salvation, but they would also teach that in order for you to be baptized in the Spirit, an apostle must be present before you can receive that baptism. Why? Because that's what happened with the Gentiles, with the Samaritans, with the disciples of John the Baptist. Before they received the Holy Spirit, who had to be there? The apostles. So based on this logic that they use to arrive at this interpretation, since there are no real apostles today, no one can be baptized with the Holy Spirit. But that is a logic that cannot be trusted and that the Word of God does not support. The book of Acts is descriptive, not prescriptive. In order to discover how the church is intended to function, we have to turn to the books of the Bible that give us commands about how we are to function as a church. Third, this view that the church consists of some who have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit and of some who have not completely contradicts 1 Corinthians 12, 13. What does Paul say there? He says, we were all baptized into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. And notice he uses the past tense. We were all baptized in the Holy Spirit into one body. We were all made to drink of one spirit. Spirit baptism is a believer's past experience that happened when he got saved. It's not something that we're waiting for as believers. It's something that has happened to us if we know Christ. If you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, then you are not yet part of the church. 
Because that's what the Spirit baptism accomplishes, your inclusion in the church. Romans chapter 8 and verse 9 says this, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. We've seen quite clearly in this chapter so far, 1 Corinthians 12, that we've all received the Holy Spirit. There are no second-class citizens in the church. Because what did we find in verse 3? If we don't have the Holy Spirit, we can't what? Confess Jesus is Lord. Fourth, those who teach that the baptism of the Spirit is a separate event from salvation also usually teach that the sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit is the speaking of tongues. And again, this is based on that faulty logic that we saw before. They are building it upon what they see in the book of Acts. But according to 1 Corinthians 12, what is the outward sign that you have been baptized in the Holy Spirit? What does verse 3 say? Your confession that Jesus is Lord. That's how you know that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. If you confess sincerely with all your heart, Jesus is Lord. Fifth, the last reason I give for rejecting this teaching, the view that specifically defines spirit baptism as empowerment for service. That's what, what is focused on, that you, you need to be baptized with the Holy Spirit so that you can be equipped for witness for special service. But that's not the biblical definition of spirit baptism. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Spirit baptism is defined as our being joined to the body of Christ. Now, does spirit baptism include empowerment for service? Absolutely. That's important. I, I can't even confess Jesus as Lord without the Holy Spirit. How can I hope to serve him apart from the enabling of the Holy Spirit? Of course that's part of it. But that's not the core issue. That teaching emphasizes, overemphasizes our gifting but de-emphasizes our inclusion in the body of Christ. First, we have to be a part of the body of Christ before we can get a gift to serve that body. Inclusion in the body of Christ is primary. The gifts are secondary. This is important for us to understand. If you've fallen asleep, tune back in here. If you sincerely confess that Jesus is Lord and that he is your master, and that your life belongs unreservedly to him, that you need to understand that you have been baptized with the Holy Spirit. You don't have to go on some spiritual pilgrimage in order to try and get God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You don't need to wait years to get a second blessing from God before you can serve him fruitfully. Listen to what Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does that verse suggest that you are missing out on some blessings? No. No. If you are in Christ, 
You have received all of Christ. He's not holding out on you. The church is the bride of Christ. What kind of husband marries a woman and then withholds himself from that woman? Christ does not do that. He is not withholding himself from his people. He laid down his whole self on the cross for us while we were yet, what? Sinners. And having now become his bride, having now become his body, how much more will he give us all of himself through his Holy Spirit? If you have repented of your sins and you have placed your faith in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then you have received the Holy Spirit and you have everything you need to live the rest of your days in faithful service to him. You have been baptized once for all with the Holy Spirit. You don't need to wait for it or seek it or pray for it. It has happened already. You need to trust that that has happened. Believe the word of God. What does need to be repeated day by day, what we do need to seek for and pray for, is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is not a one-time event. Every day we get up and out of bed, we need to repent and remember that I belong to Christ today. I'm not going to serve myself today. I'm going to serve him and yield myself to him. Lord, I need you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. That's not a one-time event. Being baptized with the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit are not the same thing. And I, I want to take a moment to show you why that is. Because it seems to me that those who believe that spirit baptism is an event that happens after your salvation, they seem to tend to confuse spirit baptism with being filled with the Spirit. But they're not the same thing. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5. Verse 18, Paul says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. When you're filled with wine, what have you done? You've given up control to a substance. We are not to do that. What are we to do? We are to yield control to the Holy Spirit. How do I do that? How do I be filled with the Spirit? How do I surrender and give control of my life to the Holy Spirit? Well, keep your finger in Ephesians 5 and turn to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verse 16. This is a parallel passage to Ephesians 5. Look at what Paul says in Colossians 3, 16. He says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell in within you. That is how you are filled with the Spirit. How do I know that? Well, look at what the results of letting Christ's word richly dwell within you are. What are the results of that? He says, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. That's the result of being richly filled with the word of Christ. Now go back to Ephesians 5. What is the result of being filled with the Holy Spirit? Ephesians 5, 18. Be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another 
in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to the, for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. It's the exact same results, telling us that being filled with the Spirit is very much the same thing as letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. So how do you get filled with the Holy Spirit? How do, you, how do you yield control to the Spirit? You do it by filling your heart with what he wrote, the Bible, the Word of God that the Spirit authored. You do it by believing what the Holy Spirit has said in this book and obeying what he says. And what are the results of being Spirit-filled? It's not speaking in tongues or prophesying or performing signs and wonders. It's speaking the truth in love to one another. It's worshiping God from our hearts. It's being full of gratitude to God. It's being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives submitting to their husbands. Husbands sacrificially loving their wives. Children honoring their parents. Fathers not provoking their children, but bringing them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 5 and 6 are all the outflow of being filled with the Holy Spirit. That is what a Spirit-filled Christian looks like. Back to the Corinthians. Were the Corinthians being filled with the Holy Spirit? They were baptized with the Spirit, certainly. They could prophesy and speak in tongues like nobody's business. They were baptized with the Holy Spirit. But were they filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't think you can read 1 Corinthians and come to that conclusion. Not when they as a church are being so severely crippled by division and quarrels and jealousy and strife. They had every resource available to them to be a healthy church that they received through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but they were wasting what the Spirit gave them on themselves rather than serving one another. May the same not be said of us here in New Woodstock. We are all, if we believe in Christ, we've all been baptized with the Holy Spirit. We have everything we need to serve him faithfully. But that does not guarantee your maturity. What you need to do is go to this book and surrender daily, moment by moment. Pick up your cross every day and surrender your life to do what the Spirit has commanded us in his word to do. Let's pray.